Mordred. Father. It's time to end it all. Well, we agree on that, at least. You know, Father, if you'd lived, I don't think we'd have been very happy as a family. Hello, and welcome back to We Read This. My name's Ash, and today I'm going to be looking at the alliterative Mort Arthur. This is a long poem dating back from around 1400 that tells the story of the legendary King of Britons leading an army to Europe and forcing Rome to kneel before him. And so he does, making good on a prophecy of Merlin's found in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, namely that Arthur would make the house of Romulus tremble at his savagery. But in the poem, following his victory on the continent, Arthur returns home to confront his doom in the form of his treacherous nephew, Mordred. Now, we glimpsed Arthur briefly in our episode on the prophecies of Merlin, but today marks the first of several episodes that will concentrate on Arthur and the literature he inspired. It's also our first proper tilt into medieval literature and our first episode on a poem of this length. And so for all those reasons, I'm very grateful to be joined today by Michael Smith, who has produced a new version of the alliterative Mort Arthur. Michael is a translator and printmaker who has previously published a version of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a poem that I hope to be talking about soon on the podcast, and one that crops up several times in the course of today's conversation. Both Michael's Gawain and his alliterative Arthur are illustrated with his beautiful lino-cut prints, which you can hear more about in tomorrow's episode, where I'm going to ask him more about his work. In the meantime, you can see and purchase Michael's prints and signed copies of Gawain and the Green Knight at his website, mythicalbritain.co.uk. You also have four more days to pledge a donation towards the publication of the alliterative Arthur, for which you can receive a personalised copy and have your name acknowledged in the book. I'll leave a link in the description to Michael's site, and in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the episode. What sort of details can we glean about the poet, um, even if we don't know who exactly they are? Okay, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that um, the manuscript itself is a transcription by Robert Thornton Mm. of an earlier manuscript. And that manuscript, the author of it is, as you say, unknown. Um, However, uh, the the dialect of it is thought to originate in Lincolnshire uh, and possibly quite close to Henry IV's uh, castle at Bolingbroke in the mm. south of the county. Now, I, I, I say that slightly mischievously because to try and create a connection with Henry Bolingbroke, but there, there is probably none whatsoever. Uh, um, however, there are themes which run through the manuscripts which uh, potentially relate to a support for Bolingbroke um, at the time of um, his usurping of the crown from Richard II. There are several ways of reading this poem uh, and trying to analyze information within it, which allow us to come to some form of date. Uh, but it's it's depending on how you interrogate the poem, it places it somewhere between 1350 and 1402, and more precisely, probably between 1375 and 1402. And if you really want to boil it down, between 1399 and 1402. (laughs) (laughs) But um, all of these things are a bit, well, it's possible to follow them through, but at some point you have to give up uh, to Mm. try and find out who it was that was writing this. But 
clearly somebody who was um, uh, people say that shouldn't really try and define a medieval person by today's standards, but you would probably call them uh, belonging to or trying to appeal to anyway, the upper middle classes, uh, the lower gentry, perhaps. What, what I'm never sure about is who came up with the idea and who the scribe was. I mean, mm. these are two different people. Did the scribe make up the poem himself? Did he compile it from a number of sources and then was his own poet? Or was there some poetic uh, uh, semi-aristocrat who was walking around a chamber in some monastery somewhere saying, get this down, right, mm. I've got it now and we're going to do this. Uh, so that's not clear. But I think if we just talk about it in the round, I think we're dealing with uh, a, a level of society, let's say a sort of lower gentry or um, well, what we might call lower aristocracy today, the sort of people you never see in the news, but who are the thin vein of uh, what I like to think about. If you think about a steak, and it has those bits of gristle in it. Mm. Those are the aristocrats that hold Britain together today that you never hear about, but who have an enormous amount of influence. And uh, so these writers, I think, were serving those people and may have come from that class got you right what i'd read about alliterative verse and maybe maybe this is an anachronistic to say um, of this period because obviously it's been around around for a long time was that it was thought to be popular amongst the sort of lower classes and yet there's a, immediately a, a kind of scholarly uh whiff about, about <laughs> the poem um i mean from the very first uh, line, I, I, it sort of sounds a bit like the opening of Metamorphoses. There's a kind of invocation to for, for, for help with my the, the writing of my poem sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, but um, lower classes, interesting. Uh, oh, I mean, you're touching on quite a, a, a multi-level discussion here. Mm. Um, now, I mean, there is this thing called the alliterative revival of the 14th century, and that's when all this alliterative poet, poetry appears or should we say it appears in writing what we don't know is whether it ever disappeared uh, between the yeah. sort of saxon period and the 14th century but we do know that there's a quite a bit of it around in the 14th century and also it is what we would call today provincial uh, which is to say largely began in the sort of uh, the west west country west of england Mm -hmm. uh, Gloucestershire around there and then moved up into uh, two major dialects of the north the uh, West Midlands and the East Midlands dialects and then eventually migrated up into the Scottish and Northumbrian uh, dialects there uh, Chaucer with his London uh, dialect uh, was dismissive in the Canterbury Tales of uh, the alliterative poets and he, he talks, I can't remember which one it is now, the Miller's tale, I can't remember, but I think it's he, the parson only because I was reading your own introduction oh, <laughs> to Gawain. I was late in the day, I, I have forgotten, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you taught I, me that. <laughs> I did, I oh, well, yeah. it's sunk in someone's head, if not my own. Yeah. Um, but uh, he says he, he does not speak rum ram rough by letter, yeah, uh, and he's basically making fun of these uh, semi illiterate northern poets. But they weren't semi-illiterate. And mm. the, the point about these dialects is that um, there was no central English or British control at that time. Uh, control was held in local 
uh, courts. If we think about the Duchy of Lancaster, the Palatinates of Chester, uh, great earldoms, and each had huge uh, political, help, huge political sway. And consequently, they attracted courts of their own. I mean, if you think of someone like John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, this man ran the kingdom during mm -hmm. the uh, early years of the reign of Richard II. So this wasn't some sort of northern hick. He was uh, a very intelligent man. So consequently, the people, these, the poets that were trying to influence these people worked at a very high level. And, mm. and, and you know, you only need to look at Sir Gawain and the Green Knight to see whoever wrote that had a profound understanding of politics, behavior, nuance, religion. I mean, he, he was an incredibly well and well-read and skillful person in putting that together. I mean, it still stands today as a, a magisterial work of English literature. John of Gaunt's brother-in-law was the poet Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer was born in the 1340s and at an early age entered the court of Edward III. Chaucer would go on to be associated with the standardising of the English language and its eventual dominance over all others as the national tongue. But following the custom of the court, his first verses were written in French. This was because English poets born in the 14th century were brought up in a polyglot society. According to Michael Schmidt, they would have known that the language of learning was Latin, the language of power and business was Norman French, and that their English was a poor cousin. Not only poor, it was a confusing and changeable cousin, in the 14th century, if two Englishmen from opposite ends of the country were to converse, they would be better off doing so in French rather than attempting to penetrate each other's bafflingly foreign dialect. And though eventually, as the language was standardised, the southern English of Chaucer would win out, for some time beforehand it was the north that could boast of the most poets writing in English. This was partially due to them being further away from the Norman sphere of influence, but it was also encouraged in later years by both Edward III and his father, Edward II, who moved their governments to York to keep a close eye on those pilfering borderers, the Scots. Brian Stone suggests the author could have been close to the court of Edward III, so perhaps they were able to gain entry thanks to this royal relocation to the north. Edward III was in many ways an ideal monarch for an English poet, having championed the language in a fit of anti-French feeling. Before he came to the throne, reading in English was, in Schmidt's words, a furtive activity frowned on by authority. Now the poets were free to develop their language, codify it in print, and crucially, openly read in English. Um, so, so with this poet, what sort of sources were um, they working working from? Yeah, uh, a whole raft of them. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so there are two strands in uh, Arthurian writing. Uh, there is that strand which comes from Geoffrey of Monmouth, uh, who created the um, history of the kings of Britain in 1136. Uh, and then there is the romantic strand, which comes not, a, not exclusively, but from Chrétien de Troyes in France, who was writing later. Uh, and the Geoffrey of Monmouth strand is known as the Galfridian strand. And it it's, reads more like a chronicle uh, rather than a romance. So it talks about, Geoffrey Monmouth talks about a whole series of British kings of which Arthur is just one. And it talks about his rise and his fall. And we're not here reading about uh, damsels in distress and uh, things like this and the magic of Merlin. Well, there's a little bit of that, but it, it, it's not over romanticized. It's, it's very much 
almost a political or semi-political history with a bit of flavor thrown in. And so the alliterative Mort Arthur falls in that strand. So when you read it, you'll see Merlin doesn't feature at all in the mm. story. Some of the major characters that people will be familiar with, like Lancelot, are actually quite minor in this story. Whereas uh, Sir Cador, Sir Cador of Cornwall is a, is a significant figure. Uh, Arthur is significant. Gawain is significant. Uh, but all the other characters, or Mordred, but the other characters, Guinevere is a bit part. Um, mm. uh, although unusually in this version of the story, she ends up uh, having children by Mordred, which is unique to the to this particular telling. Oh, right. uh, so, so yeah, so so this version takes as its so to answer your question, it, it draws on the Galfridian strand. Uh, so Geoffrey of Monmouth, Wace, Lyamon, uh, so th- these sorts of people. Mm. And on to, in terms of its readership on uh, kind of on which side of the coin um would it have f- fallen in terms of being read as a chronicle or a history or being read as a romance yeah. that's a good question because although it's in, in the galfridian uh, strain it's clearly designed to be read aloud uh, mm. it is full of bloodshed gore uh brutality but it's also about the fall of kings uh and it deals with this Middle English, uh, well, the, what the alliterative poets called uh, um, an overweening pride. And mm. Arthur sub- becomes obsessed with himself in the end and is brought down by his pride. So it tells a tale based on the Galfridian chronicle approach. But it, like many of these poems, it's written to infer best behavior. So it tells its listeners or its readers not to become obsessed with pride, to have a religious sense, a sense of care for others. Um, I mean, Arthur overreaches himself significantly by ventures abroad. He wants to become a Holy Roman Emperor almost. He's he's made that by, uh, or almost made it by his attack on Rome at the end. He, He makes the Pope bow to him, which in those days, of course, you know, if you're claiming you're above the Pope, Mm. then your pride really had gone uh, beyond the pale. So, so it's, so it, so it tells a tale, but it tells a tale for a reason. And like most of these poems, it's about instruction, not didactically so, because to do so might risk the life of the poet, but, uh, but rather like a court jester, you know, you make fun of your audience. Uh, in the same way these poets are drawing the the landed people in uh, mm. and trying to show them the error of their ways by careful illumination of the errors of others. Mm. Well, I, my next question was going to be, uh, I was going to ask you about its relationship with the, the Arthurian text that came afterwards, the, the Stanzaic Arthur and, and of course, Mallory's. Um, yeah, I mean, you've, I think you've somewhat answered it in, in that it's, got an element of moral instruction, whereas Mallory seems to perhaps be most useful for uh, specifically laws of chivalry, um, as opposed to, you know, for for people who aren't knights who are soaking the earth with gore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, again, uh, um, okay. The the, the Elytra Mortarth was written at the time of... uh, with the, of the sort of apogee of the age of chivalry, mm. if you like, or, the, sort of the, or its rebirth under Edward III. Uh, of course, its apogee was a century or so earlier, but uh, under Edward III, you had the 
forming of the Order of the Garter and other orders uh, elsewhere in France and so on. And uh, Geoffrey de, de Charny, who's uh, Livre de Chivalry, or was it the Book of Chivalry, whatever it is, uh, he wrote this uh, treatise on how knights should behave and what they should expect. And a lot of this is um, dealt with a little, a little in uh, the Illustrated Mortar, but by showing chivalry for what it is, which is a completely bogus fraud. Uh, it's, uh, it shows that these, it, it talks about these gallant men and their panoply. And then in the next breath, it says they nobly slice through their heads or a piece of liver ends up on someone's lance or, yeah. you know, or, or the bowels, someone's face, someone's bowels get trodden into the earth by a horse. Uh, and at one point, King Arthur cuts a man in half. And the, and the, narr the narrator says, uh, my hope, true to say, is his wound never heals. You know, it's not that it ever would in that situation. But so he's lampooning chivalry as well. And he's saying to mm. his uh, audience, you know, chivalry is, it, it, is not it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it. It disguises the real horror and bloodshed of warfare. You could argue that there's a, a religious, well, there is a religious element to this poem in that way. Um, mm. Now, yeah, so um, as you say, um, Mallory and also the Stanzaic Arthur, they're in it, they're, I would place both of them more on the romantic side of uh, the Arthurian canon, although uh, Mallory does, of course, draw from both uh, the Illiterate mm. and the Stanzaic Mort Arthur in creations of parts of his story. And it is thought that the alliterative style uh, play uh, in the alliterative Arthur uh, played a, a, a significant role in the development of, of Mallory's style as well. Oh, right. Uh, I believe. Uh, but I mean, I think with the alliterative Mort Arthur, you can read a lot into it on a number of angles, and that's it. That's its beauty. I think it actually does have a didactic message. Um, I mean, it reads almost like how it. it it's like a desanitized version of the films of World War One. Mm. If you think of those films that audiences at home must have been seen, the brave boys going over the top, and then you have poems written by Sassoon and the like saying, this is just crap. Uh, this is what the Mort Arthur is saying. He's saying, you know, don't, don't believe all you read in the papers. This is what's really going on. Yeah. So there's, that's coming through as well. That's so interesting. So you mentioned that had the poem been a bit too didactic, the poet would very likely be in trouble. Was, yes. Were they not um, equally risk at risk for if they were seen to be lampooning the chivalry that was quite seriously um, being adopted by Edward III uh, and so on? It's a, good, it's a good point. I suppose they're trying to please their patron, whoever their patron was. Because mm. um, these poets... I mean, we don't know who they were, but most likely they weren't paid. Instead, they were re rewarded um, by some kind of stipend. Either they could live in court or they they were an official poet to uh, a, a household or whatever it was, and they were given a room in the house. So if they were pleasing their particular patron, um, then they were probably okay. But if they then subsequently failed to please, uh, they might find themselves mopping out the stables or kicked out altogether. As we saw on our episode on Edward II, feelings of chivalric brotherhood often went hand in hand with holding hands. To this day, it can be difficult for the historian studying this age of chivalry to distinguish between homosexual relationships and excesses of brotherly passion. 
At the time of writing the poem, the disastrous consequences of the oath of brotherhood between Edward II and Pierce Gaveston would be well within living memory. Gaveston's ghost would be recalled in the latter part of the 14th century with the similar rise of one of Richard II's favourites, Robert de Vere. Like Gaveston, he was adored by the king and loathed by the nobility. After his favourite died in exile, Richard had his body shipped to England and reburied three years after de Vere's death. During the ceremony, he ordered the coffin opened so he could, for one last time, look upon his friend and touch his fingers. Richard was also known to dish out knighthoods a little too liberally, something we see King Arthur doing during this poem. In a sequence of four English kings, we see an alternating pattern with regards to chivalry. Both Edward I and his grandson, Edward III, had a keen interest in King Arthur and deliberately evoked his spirit in their courts, Edward III going as far as recreating the round table. Between them came Edward II and after them Richard II. Both are characterised as militaristically weak and prone to forming dangerously close friendships with male favourites. They are also both betrayed by their subjects, who formed coalitional and usurping groups. Edward II when the nobility forced him to banish Gaveston, and Richard II by the Lord's Appellant, who objected to five of Richard's favourites and successfully had a number of them purged during the merciless Parliament of 1388. If our poets had indeed been at the court of Edward III, they could have seen close up the ways in which chivalric codes of honour were ripe for manipulation, and the conclusion of his poem shows how King Arthur's reliance on unquestionable loyalty has left him with a Mordred-shaped blind spot. In Arthur's absence, Mordred has seized the throne and claimed the king's wife, Guinevere. This is only slightly less incestuous than it usually is, Mordred in this version being King Arthur's nephew and not his son. After Gawain is killed by Mordred, Arthur vows vengeance in terms that anticipate the destruction to follow. I shall never rest easy or have peace of heart in any city or suburb set upon earth. Never slumber nor sleep though my eyes sink in weariness till he is killed who killed Gawain if my craft prevail, but shall ever hunt down the heathen who hurt my people until I pen them and imprison them where I please. But Arthur is not a wandering knight errant hunting down the man who wronged him, but the leader of a nation. And it is this dangerous infiltration of chivalric code into the business of kingship that leads not just to the mort Arthur, but the mort of many of his men. According to Marco Nievergelt, the poem is, ideologically speaking, suspended between admiration of chivalric culture and the sobering awareness of its brutal and tragic consequences, its disastrous political outcome and its burdening of the non-military classes. By the end of the poem, Arthur is surrounded by corpses of friends, the result of a shambolic and bitter battle in which he killed his nephew and received his own death blow. According to Christine Kism, the poem climaxes in Arthur's devastating realisation that he has become either a woeful widow, shorn at once of masculinity, love and future issue, or a forlorn pilgrim, affixed to and gorily dripping with the blood-made relic of his dead nephew, or a grim, child-destroying tyrant. We're talking about mocking chivalry, which is something um, you think of in terms of uh, Don Quixote centuries later. <laughs> you know, here it is. Here it is. Yeah. Now. Um, well, I mean, that's that's how I read it. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's so. Uh, I mean, you. Okay, it could be argued that many uh, literature poets develop this, describe brutal things going on. Uh, the Siege of Jerusalem, for example, which I've, which I've not read in its entirety, uh, but it, it is incredibly brutal and is, is anti-Semitic in places. And things like these are really harsh poems, uh, incredibly vile things in, in places. Um, 
And uh, so you could argue that the alliterative mortartha actually isn't what I've just said. It's just part of a trend of violent stories. Uh, and if you and if you interpret it that way, then you might think the poems are written for a load of bloodthirsty knights sitting around a, a bawdy table somewhere in Lancashire, having a great time. Tell us about the time someone had his head cut off, his <laughs> gorse, you know, all that. So it could be that, you know, it could well be. You could read it as that if you wanted to. But I think there are so many levels going on with this poem. And as we saw, as you said at the beginning, that it opens with this invocation. It's a religious invocation. And he talks about God helping us to live a better life. Um, and, and, you know, the, and, and religion runs through the story. So you know, Sir Kay, when he's killed, he's killed unchivalrously. He's, he's stabbed in the back or lanced through the back. Uh, and then, but before he dies, he must kneel and pray and give up his soul to God. So these, these elements are still there uh, because that's what people did in that time. So it wasn't some kind of Ben Elton uh, group of people going around taking the piss out of everybody. Yeah. It wasn't quite that. But I think there's a, the, uh, the, there's a, the, there is a flavor of reform in these works, which, which I find really appealing. And how much that is really coming out and how much I'm saying it's so, is, I, I'm not entirely sure, but um, but that's how I read these poems. No, that, I think that's very convincing, especially since you mentioned Sassoon in particular um, and the, 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 the inner, inner conflict of, of, you know, not hardly a pacifist and yet yeah. um, yes. also witnessing how horrible uh, yes. something worth doing is. That that seems yes. to be very much in in keeping with the because I mean a poem like this wouldn't be able to sustain itself if it was just burlesque because it it's it would it would kind of collapse I think if it you know I think I, I think that's right I mean and the thing is if you did read it as burlesque you'd then find and when I first started work on it I thought oh god you know what is this it's it's quite <laughs> it's hard work and it, it's not really rewarding but then as you start to unpick things the themes that go through. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire, the Papal Schism, uh, Richard II, Henry IV, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, uh, the writing of the Bible in English, Wycliffe anti-war uh, messages that are coming through. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's just layer upon layer of fascinating stuff. Who, whoever wrote this was not some dilettante. He was he was he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And if if he was indeed. Uh, dressing it all up as a burlesque well that's a very clever thing to do um and so he maybe he was appealing to his then audience but writing for us in the future yeah. who knows <laughs> well it, um i i completely agree with you in terms of uh uh how it reads you you do go from um not thinking it was it's it's burlesque at all to thinking that there's a standout almost comedy bit there um yes i was thinking yeah. in particular of the uh i mean obviously it must differ from translation to translation and i haven't um read yours yet but the one i had had um it, it is okay and, and when he's 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 received his death blow and he goes to he rides up to king arthur and tells him quite calmly that he's received his death blow and he's not long for the world and will he uh, pass on his respects to queen guinevere and all her yes. ladies and then as an afterthought says and also my wife who's never annoyed me <laughs> <laughs> like, surely in any century that's a that's a gag <laughs> yeah and it's full of those it's yeah. absolutely full of and the, the the joy in the translation i mean the way i the way i translate it is um 
I try to follow the, exactly the alliterative emphasis uh, created by, that the poet uses. So if he uses the letter C, I use the letter C and so on. Oh, okay. Which over line, after several lines, because this poet, sometimes he has, so it tends to follow the standard alliterative method of, what was it, AA, AAAB, which is two stresses in the first half of the, of the line of one stress in the second. But sometimes it will change to the AAAA or ABAB. Uh, so it, he, there's no consistency to this poem. But the interesting thing about him is that sometimes he'll do this, he'll alliterate on the same letter or sound over, in some cases, seven or eight lines. And I tell you what, that doesn't half stretch you if you're trying to trying to make that work in modern English mm. and, and can repeat that. But what the outcome of that translation process is, um, is that it makes the finished translation much more authentic and you find yourself twisting the sentence and it creates drops and pithiness, which seem to replicate the, um, that's exactly the sort of comment you've you raised there about Sake. And, uh, it, and you know, you get this rolling piece of action and it just ends on the, and, and then they all went away, you know, or, or whatever it might be, yeah. you know, and, it, and it, it's great. It's, it, it's, it's like a really crap punchline and then you move on to the next, the next section. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a joyous thing to uncover and you do it accidentally and then it just jumps out at you at the end. Yeah. Um, can I circle back to Robert Thornton for a sec? Um, yes. And ask what, so am I right in thinking he, he came into the picture sometime in the 1440s? That's correct. Yes. Yes. What, what yes. can we, again, I'm asking you to probably recount a lot of inferment because these people are so distant, but what can we expect he might have altered or added or, and what sort of language differences might there have been between his transcription and the original? Yeah, okay, good questions. Uh, so Thornton, Thornton was, uh, was East Newton near York. Uh, so how many miles is that from Southern Lincolnshire? I don't know, 50, 60 miles, something like that. Mm. So, but they would both be speaking the East Midlands dialect, more or less. Uh, um, now, uh, but of course, as you know, Yorkshire dialect is different to Lincolnshire dialect. Lincolnshire is more close to uh, Nottinghamshire. If you, list, if you go and visit those two counties, you'll, mm. you'll find that blend. But as you head north, you get more of that sort of thicker uh, Yorkshire, which comes across. So now, so how Thornton, as a Yorkshireman, interpreted Lincolnshire words, um, it's hard to say, really. But what we know that he did was, an example of his technique was to take make it more obvious within the, the transcription who was speaking and when. So the original, which we don't have, may have been a kind of constant stream, whereas he would have made breaks so that if Lancelot says something or whatever, it's more obvious that, that these things are happening. Alliterative verse such as this uses alliteration to indicate the metre of the line, as opposed to rhyme or having a fixed number of stresses, which is what we call accentual verse. Of the 30,000 or so lines that survive of Anglo-Saxon verse, the majority of it is alliterative. The poet who wrote Sir Gawain and the Green Knight acknowledged the form's history by saying, If you will listen to the lay for a little while, I shall tell it quickly as I heard it in town, as it is clearly established in firm, strong story, linked together with loyal letters, as has long been done in this land. In medieval alliterative verse, the lines tend to have four stresses, and in the version I'm reading from, three or four alliterations. 
Incidentally, I'm not reading from Mike's copy because it's not out yet. I'm reading from a translation by Brian Stone. So here's an example of the number of alliterations per line changing and the way in which those alliterations indicate the rhythm. We have the first to follow my furious charge and also the flower of his followers shall be fatally felled. Now the line itself is broken by a caesura in the middle, which leads to this kind of seesaw in the line. Let his highly bred beast browse on the flowers, drew off his helmet and fine armour, leant on his large shield and inclined to the ground. In the bold man's whole body, no blood was left. These half lines, or hemisticks, mean that even when the alliteration isn't very distinct, like in that second line, drew off his helmet and fine armour, you still have a sense of rocking back and forth, of turning from one hand to another. And a reason a line like that might not be too distinct is because it alliterates on the vowels. And while with consonant alliterations they'd stick to the same letter, like the flower of his followers shall be fatally filled, when it came to vowels it seemed fair game to alliterate any of them. You could also throw in an H, so the closest thing I can find to three words alliterating there is drew off his helmet and fine armour, which being an O, an H and an A doesn't sound alliterative at all. Brian Stone writes that in Anglo-Saxon, the number of unstressed syllables between stresses tended to be one or two, which was possible because Anglo-Saxon was an inflected language in which auxiliary words such as prepositions were sparse, and word order was to some extent flexible. But by the end of the 14th century, when this poem was composed, many inflections had disappeared or weakened, so that more prepositions and connectives were required, and accordingly it was generally necessary for a poet to include more unstressed syllables. Of course, this all just typifies alliterative verse, and, but saying such rules are at all times obeyed is like saying Shakespeare wrote everything in iambic pentameter. We refer to this poem as the alliterative Mort Arthur in order to distinguish it from another long poem from around the same time, dealing with similar source material. This work is known as the Stanzaic Mort Arthur, and while the two stories culminate in King Arthur's death, the alliterative version focuses on his war on the continent and return home to a shock betrayal, whereas the Stanzaic Arthur tells a different story of betrayal, the story of Lancelot and his affair with Guinevere. This storyline, told largely from Lancelot's perspective, is much more lurid and contains perhaps more recognisably Arthurian moments. However, the Stanzaic metre and rhyme scheme results in much more fussiness. They looked for Lancelot far and wide, but nothing did they hear. Lovely as wild rose blossoming, one day Queen Guinevere sat at supper with Sir Gawain, Beside her with, I swear, a Scottish knight she well esteemed, on the other side of her. It is telling that some of the most enjoyable verse is also its most alliterative. Then Gawain, up to every while, put armour on, took arms, and mounted on a battle horse well used to war's alarms. He leapt forth like a living coal before the barbican, and challenged any knight within to prove himself a man. When it comes to descriptions of battle, the alliterative version wins hands down. Compare the following. Readily the ruthless men of the round table, struck with strong steel through chainmail, cut through corslets and crushed bright helmets, hacking down heathens and hewing necks asunder. That's from the alliterative version. Now here's a similar moment from the dainty and faintly ridiculous stanzaic. Many a spear was thrust and splintered, many a stern word spoken, many a sword was hacked and bent, many a helmet broken. I wanted to ask as well, is... At the time of writing, um, there's a there isn't a, a common tongue in um, England. That's correct. But quite soon there is, uh, which I, I I sort of link with Chaucer and it, and it getting a bit sort of the kind of prosy English vernacular emerging um, and taking off. 
is is there a link between that happening and a sort of fading away of alliterative verse or is are the two things not linked yeah they could, that could well be the case yeah uh i mean i i don't really know but i i it does seem coincidental doesn't it that uh, alliterative i mean alliterative verse i think moves northwards to scotland as the scottish dialect or, or scottish yes uh, so northumberland and scotland di- early scottish dialect appear mm. and it moves up there and so uh, there's certainly more of it in a later period in the north country uh, than in the south as things as things changed in terms of your own translation then what 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 kind of what, what do you have in front of you and and do you do you try to avoid certain versions or or, or f- and focus on working from one or is it better to have a good full sweep Oh well, uh, okay. What do I, what did I use? I used my my starting manuscript was Edmund Brock's transcription uh, of the nineteenth century, which is the Early English Text Society, uh, and these are what I tend to use for my work. Although they are dated and things have moved on, so in the case of the Literature Mortata, that was my starting one, and then I had Larry Benson's. Uh, uh, King Arthur's Death, which is a sort of a, a, a more modern version of uh, a Brock, and I also used um, uh, Krishna's Deliterative uh, Mort Arthur, um, uh, which is as you get older in age, it's nice to have bigger text so you can read it more clearly. Um, so I had that, and then I used, and then so those are my three Middle English uh, transcript. So that all those are transcribed from the well, some at some point or other they come from. The original manuscript in Lincoln Cathedral, uh, and then I used uh, Stone's uh, the Penguin edition. I also used Armitage's edition, um, the 2012. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to get some of that joy and flavour and spit that comes out of these original writers and put them in a, a modern day room of medieval knights and ladies mm. who who want to just have a bit of fun, but where, where the language rolls in an almost Shakespearean way. And the, and the thing about these literature poets, well, they're, they're ba- they're, their language is based on a smaller vocabulary than our own, which means that each word carries so much more weight. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, Robin Hood stories, in summer when the leaves were green, you know, one sentence, that's a very short sentence, but straight away you're in, you're in the season of summer, but the leaves are really green mm. and not just green, but they're green. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're in this very rich environment. And so that's what I try to do. In the, and with and w- with the words I choose to use, uh, particularly in the literature of Mort Arthur now and going in f- future works, is to use uh, a vocabulary which is etymologically consistent with the time so i i won't use a modern word if etymologically it doesn't fit in i'll, I'll give myself a bit of leeway mm. um uh so for example if there's something that was around in the 17th century i think okay i'll i'll push that in because it, it still gives a bit of a historic flavor but if it's 19th century or modern i'm not interested because it sort of takes you away from from where i want the story to mm. to rest and in so doing it forces you to write the sentences in the way that the poet was writing. And the real thing, the challenge with this one I've done, uh, unlike the Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, I have chosen not to use apostrophes. So 
in so doing, if there's an apostrophe, I have to rewrite the sentence so it still works um, oh. without the apostrophe. And I tell you what, that's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, bet, I, I bet you have a whole new appreciation for the apostrophe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what I'm working on at the moment, which I can't talk about, but it's uh, I, I curse myself for this rule because it spoils so much. But it forces you to write in this style, and it's 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 good. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the spit, and obviously that I think that's the, I mean the most immediately pleasurable thing about about this poem. Um, I, the description of the giant as uh, he's got the the, the collops of his face and his flounder mouth and fleering. Um, oh yes, and all of yes. the gore as well. That yeah. livers exposed, brains on lances dripping off, and that kind of thing. Is there <laughs> something about alliterative verse? Do you think that lends itself to that sort of? Um... Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, you, you go along to any football match or whatever, and you hear the abuse that's poured out at yeah uh, at, at some player or other, or the referee, and it's almost certainly the abuse will be partly alliterative yeah. because you just it's the venom. You just want to get out of these people. Whatever's wrong in your own life, you want to pass it to somebody else. And uh, and those poor referees and linesmen, they're the ones that get it yeah. from the net. <laughs> from a load of modern-day alliterative poets on the terraces. Um, but I think it does, it lends itself well to that. But having said that, you know, you look at Gawain and the Green Knight, that's a much gentler poem, mm. a much more nuanced poem. And um, that has a different form of uh, musicality to it. The alliteration serves to create a, a, a mellifluous flow, really, which is, which, oh, I don't know, as you know, it's, it's a beautiful piece of work. Mm. One thing the alliterative style proves deliciously successful at is lavish descriptions of food. And since we have something of a track record in slavering over extended menus from The Wind in the Willows, Jules Verne, and Boswell and Johnson's Scottish Adventures, I thought it would be remiss to leave out the following. These are merely some culinary highlights from the feast Arthur serves to his visiting Roman senator. Peacocks and plovers on platters of gold, porcupine piglets unpastured by man, herons handsomely hidden in their plumage, and swans swiftly served on silver chargers. Wild boar shoulders with the best brawn sliced, barnacle geese and bitterns on embossed dishes, young hawks on croot, and brisket of pork brightly gleaming. Next come cranes and curlews cunningly roasted, rabbits in rare sauce richly hued, pheasants flourished with flaming silver, and pies glazed with glare and good things in plenty. We, we touched on this, but I just I just wanted to um, ask as a follow up. So it's the alliterative verses I, I associate it with with Beowulf and the Anglo-Saxons. Was was there um was there a particular reason for its its 14th century and or well, 15th century revival? Well, as I say, what I'm not what I'm not sure about is um, whether it ever went away. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's it, it, it could have been spoken on. People could have been speaking it in courts. Uh, mm. I mean, you know, there's an argument that would say that the French language took over uh, you know, after the Norman conquest and maybe it was buried and way of speaking verse and poetry was hidden uh, for a long while. And then possibly with the Black Death and the destruction of great swathes of society, uh, then the English language came back into greater use and with it, uh, the alliterative style. I mean, I think, you know, there, there, there are poems like uh, William of Palerne, for example, which were 
commissioned by a great uh, uh, aristocratic uh, French and Latin reading magnate, Humphrey of, uh, well, Humphrey de Bohun. Uh, and, uh, and yet he commissioned this, the translation of this French poem into a, the alliterative style. So, you know, he, in English, for his people in his Gloucestershire estates. And you think, uh, well, why has he done that? You know, so there mm. must be, uh, there, was, there was clearly some kind of uh, undercurrent of poetic uh, tendency going on in the land. But I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't, I would never go so far as to say it was quashed. Uh, and, and it seems to me, as a way of relating long stories, the alliterative style and its meter enable you to control pace and delivery and help mm. you to remember. I mean, I've done a few performances of Gawain and uh, and also the alliterative Mort Arthur in a, I, I, I work for a, I, I do some voluntary work for a redundant church and as a way of raising money, the last few years we've done performances based on bridge translations of my poems and the the, the wow. joy of doing them this particular church is there's no electric light there's no heating and we usually do it in the middle of winter um so the steam rises from your mouth and the candle lights is all there is is candles in there it's pitch black mm. and there's about 200 people in there and you just speak in this alliterative these alliterative words and uh, it just has a power all of its own and i'm not sure i mean maybe a, a more fluid and florid uh, poetic style would work just as well. But certainly this helps you keep control of an audience in a cold environment. So yeah, I don't, so what, did it go away? Did it revive? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But that's fascinating though, the, the idea that, well, not the idea, that the, the proof that it, it is that the style assists memory for recital. Um, oh, it does. It makes that such would... sense as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah it, 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 it really does. And, uh, and you can, and once you become in control of it you can really uh, so just going back a bit when you asked me about how i translate now i read passages to myself aloud and i read them again and again and then all of a sudden what it's saying to you is oh no she's saying that or he's saying that and it yeah. just comes out at you you know so um it has it's got that great ability to to work from a memory point of view but yeah I don't think anyone would have memorized the alliterative Mort Arthur, but you never know. You know someone <laughs> good, will have. <laughs> good luck to them. That's all I can say. Yeah, <laughs> it's obvious as soon as you as you as you say it because there's there's so many. Um, I mean, not really lists, but kind of catalogues of, particularly in, I'm thinking in the battle scenes. There's so many, uh, you know, items of warfare, descriptions of formations and names. Um, this, yes, yes it's not just the sort of uh gory side of things it must also assist with that sort of um sword rattling militaristic march yeah in terms of the literature in fact the, the style of the literature of Arthur is very much uh, a martial style it rattles yeah. along exactly as you say in a, mil in a militaristic way um and there are uh things that come out of it the shorthand sections which are repeated throughout uh, there's a particular phrase something like along the salt strands uh, which comes out again and again so you have these battle scenes and then at the end of a battle scene it would say and uh, you know and then they decamped along the salt strands um, and I, these remind me of the the old hot letter days of the of the press in fleet street where you know, you people would reach up for a particular phrase rather than have to set it letter by letter. So yeah. you know, uh, 
uh, actions incompatible with their status, uh, for example, <laughs> would, would be one. Or uh, where an act of gross sexual indecency occurred, you know, the two men did this, the what so did that, you know. The, and so these poems read like that. They have bits that just are taken out and used again and again and again. Yeah. Um, I, I, to come back to the, the poets, sort of, um, I read in your introduction to um, Gawain that the the narrator, whether it is the poet or not, literally meant to be the poet or is, a, is another narrator, is this sort of mysterious figure who surfaces and adds a sort of dash of personality or personal opinion every now and again. And yes. there's a similar moment. I, I counted at least one moment where that happens in the illustrative Arthur. And um, I think he says, and now something happened, which I found particularly annoying. And it suddenly makes you go, oh, there's someone watching all of this. <laughs> is that, yeah. th- that is another thing that makes it seem uh, very modern, that it's not a kind of chorus voice. Um, yeah, is, yeah, is, that's right. That, is that normal for the for the period or is I think it's the ones that I've worked on, yes. Uh, uh, and some of them are even more personal. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like they're, they're, they're with you the whole time. Um, so, but, but that idea where he suddenly forgets that he's dispassionate, he suddenly appears in your head. I think I, I, that's quite charming. Who is he? I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's, uh, well, you're right. You're right to pick that up. It's, uh, it's, it's quite, 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 quite wonderful. It is. Yeah. You immediately sort of hope that he's some old veteran you know he was a spear carrier or something <laughs> watching all this and dodging and yeah, scribbling that's it. <laughs> i mean it's, it's a moot point whether this person this this writer i mean the detail the detail in this poem is so profound that it suggests either he had fought in battles or he knew many people who did or he was extremely well read his knowledge is astonishing and some of the things he talks about like sea warfare and the way people uh, lower the lead at the luff for example and this is acutely observed uh, uh, activity uh, which you can imagine a poet a poet today or an artist picking up on some minor act like someone like Revilius who is one of my favorite artists uh, he he has a great technique for picking up the unobserved in mm. life. You know, the, someone standing in the corner hoeing a hoeing a lawn, or or a, or a cat attending to itself while some major piece of action is going on elsewhere. And this is what this uh, the Arthur poet does. He 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 takes the details of life and lays them out for us, a bit like a, an illuminator in those illuminated manuscripts. You know, the Trebuchets, uh, the Duc de Berry. Uh, the, the months of the year. I mean, you look at the illuminations there and the things he sees. Mm. These aren't decorations. These are things he actually saw. Yeah, you know, this is this is this is not art. This is a photograph yeah. of another world, and and that's what this poet is sh- showing us. And so, did this poet, for example, travel that pilgrim's route all the way through the centre of Europe, across the Alps, into northern Italy, down to Rome? on that journey that Arthur took? Or had he read Adam of Usk, who took a similar journey at around 1400? Uh, you know, you know. so is it reading? Is it experience? Mm. Uh, uh, and then his description of, at one point he describes the archers of an army being arranged on the flanks. Uh, so it, in medieval warfare and English armies, 
typically the majority would be archers or longbowmen and maybe 10 uh, maybe 20 percent of the army would be uh, knights who would typically fight dismounted and it's always been a matter of debates to where the archers were so often you'll see them shown in spikes along the front of the army and sometimes they're shown on the flanks and in the alliterative mort arthur it's quite clear he says the archers form on the flanks mm. of this particular battle uh, so now, that is an observation of seeing an English army in action somewhere. Yeah. Because uh, otherwise he would just say, oh, the archers have just formed up. But no, he says they form up on the flanks. Yeah. So, you know, that, that is a cute observation. Yeah. Who'd, who? Gosh, who'd have thought that it would be a, a, an Arthurian poem could contain so much documentary um, information it's full like of that? It. Yeah. 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 That's, it is that absolutely... also seems to set it, set it in stark contrast to to the likes of Mallory. Yeah, this is, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is not about this. Almost the story is not really about people. It's about a time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is about people. It's about Arthur and so on. But but it, but again, if we see if we see it as semi-didactic and saying kings shouldn't behave like this, the people are almost secondary to what's being said. And I, I say in my introduction to the book, uh, which when you but it's published, you'll see, but it, I say this is a poem for the modern times. You know, we have these uh, populist politicians and nationalists saying, you know, the, the past was a brilliant country, we're going to bring it back. And this is what Arthur does. And uh, he goes over there. And of course, once that bubble is burst, there's nowhere else to go. Mm. And, uh, you know, this, this story is a story of the pricking of those bubbles. A contemporary of the Arthur poet, whose name does survive, is Lawrence Minot, who lived during the first half of the 14th century. Like the Arthur poet, he was a northerner who wrote in alliterative verse. His poems patriotically celebrated the triumphs of Edward III during the Hundred Years' War. By contrast to Minot's celebratory war songs, critics have picked up on a much less flattering picture of crusade in the alliterative Arthur. According to W.R.J. Barron, the poem's thematic emphasis is on the fate of a society as conditioned by the character and personal conduct of the hero king. Here, the confluence of chivalric adventure and chronicle becomes sinister. The traditional beginning of a hero's adventure required the ritualistic donning of armour, whereas here what we see is a whole nation arming itself for war. By the time of the poem's first appearance, the glory of Edward III's achievements in France would have lost a bit of their glow, the English people may well have realised that for years of crippling taxation, they had made very little meaningful gain. Once they heard the returning soldiers' stories of raping and pillaging across France, they could be forgiven for suspecting the repeated outbreaks of plague had a ring of divine retribution. In short, there would be ample reason to feel disillusioned with the cant of religious crusade, the sort Arthur delivers before his invasion. My ancestors were emperors who owned Rome themselves. They occupied the empire for eight score winters, each heir in turn, so the old men say. Then Constantine, our kinsman, captured it after that. He was heir to England's throne and emperor of Rome, and captured the cross by conquest of arms, one which Christ was crucified, king of heaven. So we ask the emperor with equal justice, what right thus to rule in Rome does he claim? Edward III, the man who rebuilt Arthur's round table, began the Hundred Years' War when he made his own claim to the French crown. For Edward, the issue of divine right provided a perfect excuse for economic and territorial gain. Arthur's dispute leads him to Rome, which Marco Nievergelt calls a conveniently slippery double signifier that acts both as metaphorical centre of imperial ambitions 
and as a sacred pilgrimage destination. Funnily enough, Edward III would himself be eventually asked to become Holy Roman Emperor, an offer he turned down. Although accepting it would have aligned him even more closely with Arthur, according to Ian Mortimer, he no longer needed to associate himself with old kings and legends. His own reputation, won through his own efforts, and in new ways, was greatness enough in itself. That it's all it's all, it's it's really lining up for me a bit because I was I was wondering I'm not a very experienced Arthurian so I wasn't particularly sure whether the exclusion of um, people like Lancelot although he gets mentioned he's not he's not a central figure by any means um, and the lack of Merlin the smaller part of Guinevere and the slightly more sympathetic portrayal of uh, Mordred yes and yeah. and toning down the incest side of things as well. I, I wasn't yes. quite sure was that because it, it, it this is such an anachronistic thing to say and a foolish thing to say but because it feels like it's almost more realistic your my your modern intuition tells you that the writers cutting those things out to maybe try and keep to a, a sort of sense of reality which I'm sure is absolutely not true of the time but were those omissions a uh, deliberate like were the, were the characters fully formed by the time um, the illustrative Arthur was written and if they were cut out was it a kind of more of a moral consider because they, they're all the characters who are linked with the slightly dodgy side of um, the Arthur <laughs> stuff the incest the, the paganism all of that the cheating as well the rampant yeah. cheating would it maybe be more like that as opposed to obviously the much more modern being a bit more realistic well I think at the beginning of the at the beginning of the poem there's talk about how Arthur took over the kingdom and all that after um, oh, Uther. And he talks about all the things he'd done so uh, to grow Britain's power. And then Britain seems to have gone asleep again. Um, and then the Romans uh, invade and it pricks this, this bubble. So it, it seems to me that, that the poet is saying, well, we know what we know the rest of the story. This isn't about any of that. Um, it's about uh, this, uh, and and that's what he writes about. Um, maybe he couldn't be bothered. I mean, <laughs> or maybe, maybe, maybe a massive chunk of it is missing. You know, we just don't know. But yeah. if there was a chunk of it missing, you'd think that the, what's left would refer to bits which don't make sense, and it doesn't really do that. I mean, there are parts in the story where. It is known that, I mean, for example, the episode with Sir Priamus or Sir Priamus, that's sort of slightly disjointed. And it's thought that, you know, parts have, parts have gone relating to that. And, and actually, the, why that part's in there is a bit weird, uh, a sort of semi-chivalric romantic uh, element within an otherwise uh, chrono chronological story is, is curious. So it could be that there was once more to this mm. uh, or that the source poem that the Arthur poet was using was more detailed, but he's taken whatever he's produced. He's produced, I think for this didactic reason and not for the romance. Yeah. Reason. Uh, I mean, if there have been parts removed, then it holds together remarkably well, given that the, the alliterative style, it, it's breathless and sequential. Yeah, it is. It's, it, yes. I mean, you, you must know better than anyone um, how it's like to translate. Uh, you must almost be dying for a, a a chapter break or, or, or to just change <laughs> change rhythm for just a moment to, to catch your breath yeah that's it it's uh, it does it does go on and uh, um and you're right it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to stop 
Yeah. Uh, I think there are four. There are four sections to it. The beginning, uh, where the Romans come over and say, "We want our lands. You've got to pay homage to them." And then there's the bit where he fights the giants among Saint Michel. Then there's the bit where um, he defeats Lucius. And then there's the bit where he goes on Rome and uh, and then has to come back. So there are four distinct sections to the poem, and that make that makes their break. That makes breaks for convenience. But they're not. It's not that obvious where they are mm. uh, as you're doing it. It's uh, it's a bit like Gawain and the Green Knight. Today we break it down into four parts, but arguably it could be broken down into seven or more. Um, you know. But anyway, it is. You're right. It's a, it by and large is a continuous narrative, mm. and, and then it and stops. It, and it's structure wise, it has these two important dreams um, yes. at sort of either end. Yes. And they really w w once we've got rid of. Well, Morgan Le Fay, Merlin, and all all of that side of the Arthur story, yeah. Prophetic dreams suddenly have a a, a a huge impact in this visceral world. Um, could you talk a little bit about the the sort of meaning of those and and the the placement of those? Yeah, and I think these two dreams are quite fundamental to this story and interpreting it as a story of the fall of kings. Mm. So, the, in the first dream. The bear and the so Arthur is Arthur is Arthur's had his challenge uh, from the Roman emperor, and instead of paying homage, he says, "Blah, blow that! I'll go and take Rome for myself." So he sets off in this boat, and with the motion of the waves, he falls falls asleep, and he has this dream in which a bear and a dragon fight each other, and and that dream is interpreted by the sages as whether Arthur is. Uh, right or wrong to do this and uh, it's the interpretation that he's, he is right to invade uh, Europe and take Rome and take you know take control uh, whereas at some point after he defeats Lucius he suddenly becomes uh, obsessed with victory and military prowess his pride his circuitry becomes over overwhelming and although it's not greatly described in the text. You can see after the siege of Metz, which, which by the way, uh, is interpreted by some as equivalent to the siege of Limoges in 1370, which was described by uh, Foissart as incredibly violent uh, and, and, a, and a brutal siege. And, and after the siege of Metz, which may or may not mirror the siege of Limoges, he then seems to progress making widows of, 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 of women all through Europe as he moves down to Rome. And then on the night of his greatest victory, you know, when he's about to take Rome, he has this second dream uh, in which Lady Fortune appears and says, well, mate, hello there. Uh, all your power's over. Forget it. You know, you do what you like. Um, that's it. You're and uh, you're done. And, you know, so he's on this... He's, he's, he thinks he's been given the seat to the Wheel of Fortune and there are all these other eight, eight of the nine worthies are already on there. Most of them have fallen off, except for the equivalent of Charlemagne and uh, Godfrey of Bouillon, Bion, I think it is. Uh, and Arthur is the ninth worthy. And uh, consequently, he's, he's thrown off this wheel and crushed to pieces. And his sages interpret the dream and say, I'm really sorry, but your fortunes are done. And then the day after that, when he, he encounters a uh, Sir Craddock, who's come from England, who tells him that uh, Mordred's turned against him and so he must go back. 
So now, what do the why are these dreams important? I think it relates to this sort of Wycliffeite thing of the just war. And the first dream is about is my is my, are my actions legal? And is there just cause for, for going on this venture? And that is interpreted as yes. But in fact, uh, just war theory would argue that his intentions were corrupt because his intentions are to take power over the Holy Roman Emperor, who is in medieval society, king above all kings. So his intention is incorrect. Mm. And also he doesn't have permission of the Pope to do this. And uh, so two out of three criteria for a just war uh, don't exist. And so when he eventually, through his own circuitry, takes on Rome and uh, takes the, tries to uh, remove Pope from power, he's seen as uh, completely flawed. And so the two dreams, to my mind, represent uh, Arthur's failure in, in, in just war philosophy, mm. uh, whether it's Thomas Aquinas or Wycliffe or, or, or whoever. I, I think they, uh, they're so interestingly well well done, the two dream sequences, because mm. you assume that because it's a prophetic dream and it's Arthurian literature that it's going to be absolutely final. And both times that happen, they, they're quite complicated uh, by his response and his actions afterwards. So the first one that happens, which turns out to be read by his seers as a as a victorious dream he's still kind of totally rattled by it he doesn't wake up thinking you know that was a glorious dream he sort of feels like it was a nightmare so that's already kind of emotionally uh a bit complicated yes and then later and and later on even though as you say he's told in a dream that he's done uh it still takes another act of of pride and uh circuitry for him to um finalize his undoing with with mordred so it, it's it, that seems so much 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 richer than the standard kind of I prophesize this and therefore it happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and again, I think it's uh, it's all to do with I think the theme behind the poem, the fact that the the poet was was had a message mm. for the for for his audience, and uh, it, it the uncertainty which you've described, I think it, it's it's sort of prevails throughout, and and uh, yeah. Neither dream is really satisfactory for Arthur. I just love how th- that uncertainty makes everything feel, you know, you could, you, it just opens up the ways in which you can read it, whether it's yeah. Uh, yeah. irresponsible dream analysis, <laughs> um, hallucinations. <laughs> it could be itself a product of uh, extreme pride, just having these yeah. kind of vain, glorious yeah. dreams. Yeah, indeed, yes. Um, I do. I do love uh, Lady Fortune and the way she suddenly just flips. Yeah. You know, he, he gives. She gives him all of these things, and then and her, just after midday or whatever, he says, all her mood changed, just <laughs> like that. And uh, and that's it. You know, uh, we've all had you, days like that with Lady Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. Indeed, we have. Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, having seen your, um, your uh, the videos on your YouTube channel, you've made a, a brilliant video about the role of nature in. Um, oh, thank you. In, yeah. In this this poem, at the risk of asking you to repeat yourself, could you talk a little bit about that because it is another striking um, element of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, nature. I mean, it's nature is used a lot by the Middle English poets, uh, often to create an element of uncertainty in. in in the action, 
uh, for example, in uh, uh, the Parliament of the Three Ages, everything takes place in the middle of this wood. Uh, an act of great emotional uncertainty occurs there. Uh, in the case of, and of course, going in the Green Knight is packed full of nature. Mm. In the alliterative Mort Arthur, nature is usually used to preface a darker act. So uh, before Arthur goes to uh, take on the giant of Mont Saint Michel, he goes on his, he walks through. Uh, uh, by a beautiful river and all these birds singing, and uh, it's it, it's it, it's almost treacly in its melancholy. Uh, mm. And you can sort of imagine these knights gently walking through, and it builds up this sense of foreboding. Um, and then, of course, you leave that forest. He climbs that mountain, and the mountain is bare apart from these two fires, and the giant uh, with these beards on his belt and he's basting these children on the spit and he's raping these women and it's just vile i mean i think the giant is a metaphor for war mm. uh in this instance uh but yes yeah, so you have that contrast between the beauty of nature and then the horror uh the bestiality of the beast in that in that instance um but it also occurs to preface magic so before he meets uh, priamus uh he he um it gawain uh, ventures across this uh field this uh i think where have i got this There's something written here let's see uh now these fresh men at arms fare to the forest to the colorful fells went those fine nobles through vale and hedge by high hill and onwards through halts and hoarwoods with groves of hazel and through morass and moss in those high mountains till on that misty morning they come to a meadow mown but unmade and not much maintained and in swathes all scythed down yet full of sweet flowers there these bold men unbridle their horses to browse then towards the daybreak the birds began all to sing while the sun rises which is sent by christ that soothes every sinner who sees it on earth then the warden wends out, Sir Gawain himself, a wise man and strong warrior, some wonder to seek. Then he was aware of a wondrous armed man, baiting him on the river bank by the edge of the wood, bedecked in a burnie bright to behold, bearing a broad shield on a noble horse, with no obedient squire, save but a boy, who rests nearby on a horse and holds his spear. His shield bore three greyhounds of black graced on gold, wearing chokers and chains of chalk-white silver. A gem of changeable hues was charged on its chief, and a bold chief he was, challenging all to attack him. So you sort of go from wow. that sort, sort of sense of uh, uh, calm, mm. beauty on the mountainside and the meadows. And I love that notion of the, of the, the field being scythed, so that everything's just sort of left. Yeah. It's mown, but it's unmade. So it's it's been scythed, but not nothing's been put into stooks. So it's like it's been left. Yeah. Uh, empty of farmers. Yeah. Um, and then by the riverbank, you've got this man waiting in that sort of Arthurian style. No one shall pass here. Yeah. And he's just he's just got a boy, and it's it's uh, yeah, it's quite it's quite beautiful. It is beautiful, and it's it's a real treat to hear you read it because. I think if for anyone listening who's who's not read it before, if they open the alliterative Arthur somewhere, they, they would 
maybe be forgiven for thinking that this poet's almost trying to write them tongue twisters. Sometimes yes. visually it looks like that's 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 a mouthful with these you know five G's of you know glottal harsh yes. <laughs> things. But <laughs> yes. when you read it like that, you can. You, I mean, you can tell it's alliterative, of course, but it sounds so much more natural and, and fluid. And uh... I mean, the way I've um, the way I've written the, the the translation when it appears, it actually I've included a a, a caesura in each line, mm. and I encourage people to read it aloud. And I also say to people, you don't necessarily have to place the emphasis in a word on a syllable where it's placed today. If you want to place it somewhere else, then do so if it makes the the flow work for you. Mm. I do think these poems are meant to be read aloud and that, and that's where their joy really is because as you saw the alliteration just 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 comes out and I hope I've translated it in a way that the emphasis does fall on those on where it's meant to fall alliteratively mm. as it's spoken aloud. Well it sounds like you have I mean it, it, thank you so much so. for that. <laughs> And now of the death of Arthur I shall sing And how to the island Avalon he sailed The once and future king That is all from us today. A huge thank you once again to Michael Smith, who you can hear more from tomorrow when I ask him more about the process of translation and printmaking. And remember, if you'd like to purchase a copy of Michael's book on Gawain or pledge towards his publication of The Alliterative Arthur or by any of his prints, do check out mythicalbritain.co.uk. Thank you all for listening, and until tomorrow, happy reading. (laughs) 